0: TVA 21 Academy Radio.
1: We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright, deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, A sea of pristine predators who leave us alone. A sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms. A sea free of stings. A sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go. A sea that lets us breathe over and under water. A sea that warms us and absorbs our heat. A sea of creatures to talk to. A sea of singing and dancing and falling in love not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch, but what are the wants of the sea, what are the wants of the sea?
0: Welcome to Ocean Wants a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wants was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 5, Translating Whales, featuring David Gruber.
2: To know what other humans want, we can ask them. But pets aside modern societies lost the confidence and interest in communicating with non-humans. Could advanced machine learning allow for an interspecies conversation, even with creatures that spend most of their time away in the deep? I'm Ingo Niermann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amoris, and today I'm talking to David Gruber, marine biologist and leader of CETI, a multidisciplinary project on understanding the acoustic communication of sperm whales. He speaks from his home in New York.
3: My name is David Gruber. I'm a marine biologist. And I approach marine biology from two themes. I have one theme, which is trying to see the world from the perspective of the marine creatures. And that involves studying their vision and making cameras to try to essentially get as close as I can to the perspective of the the animal I'm looking at. And the other area of my research is delicate exploration, Uh, collaborating with uh, roboticists, uh, especially Rob Wood at the Harvard Microrobotics Lab, where for the last seven years, we've been designing some of the most gentle robots in the world. And it has more of a futuristic slant of thinking more about the process of the research that we can interact with life at the bottom of the ocean without extracting it and bring it to the surface so we could study it.
2: If you grab a jellyfish in this way and it survives the grab, but you would still bring it
3: to the lab? We 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 developed something um, a few years ago. It's a rotary-actuated dodecahedron that essentially has one spinning. It's based on origami and it forms a a dodecahedron, but it starts out as a flat sheet of paper or a flat, and then so it will approach the animal, and then when you turn this, it actually forms a dodecahedron around the animal. And what we would want to do would be to encase it and temporarily, um, almost give it a doctor's checkup, where we could then, um, you know, just kind of do a swab and look at the genome, and we could 3D scan the animal. Um, there's a whole suite of other kind of really fancy next-generation genomic sequencing that we can do. And then when we're done, we open up and we let the jellyfish swim away.
2: When did your interest in the ocean start?
3: You know, I grew up in New Jersey in the US, and the river that flowed through my town was called the Passaic River. And it was an EPA, uh, something called a Superfund site, which are some of our most Environmentally degraded uh, systems, but as a child growing up, I I didn't know this. This was my backyard and my playground, and I I was this was this was the closest thing I had to aquatic, and I would just look at the, you know the the small little animals that would be in there, uh, the little crustaceans, the little fish that would be there, and that was my first you know interaction with with aquatic organisms. And that was my, my first, you know, my first interaction with life. So in the years that have ensued, I've, I've of course just kept going and going and going and, um, studying the tropical rainforest. I I did that for, for several years early in my career, but I realized that the ocean was really my, my favorite place. I was living in Guyana, um, along the Burbese River when I was uh, doing something called Forest Dynamic Plots for the Smithsonian. And very close to the equator, wearing the, there were so many mosquitoes and so many insects. I love the diversity, you know, coral reefs and tropical rainforests are some of the most luscious, most diverse ecosystems. But, um, but I felt that the coral reefs were just such a more gentle um, place to to be spending my time
2: besides coral reefs you were rather drawn to like the fringes of attention like jellyfish uh, biofluorescence in the deep sea yeah
3: you know it's a bit also like music or you know if if there's a certain band or or you know pop culture where all the scientists were studying i i wasn't as interested as in working in those areas and I did my PhD in more in microbiology and bacteria protozoa interactions, you know, peering through the microscope and seeing these, you know, almost like little alien single celled life forms and their beauty and their intricacies. I think I would always try to go to places where there wasn't many research because there's so many different species, so many different animals, there should be no reason for you know, competition in in the science because there's so much to look at. So it's nice to kind of find an area where there's very few scientists and, and you can work quite quietly.
2: But recently your attention switched to whales uh, and they, if anything in, in the ocean, they seem to be really at the center of attention.
3: Yeah, I've avoided them. I remember I, I did a master's degree at the, the Duke University Marine Lab and there was um you know, I took a marine mammal class at that time and and I I just felt there was just too much, you know, and I hate to say it, but in one sense, when you mix science and emotion, it's not always the best mix. You know, there become then certain interest groups that that push the science in one direction and the science gets a, a bit corrupted and it becomes difficult to really sort out the truth. And and I felt something similar in marine mammals. There was just so much emotion there, but the the science didn't seem as strong as it did in areas of medical research or microbiology. So I veered away from it for a long time. And why am I coming back to it now? I think you know being being someone who studied corals and jellyfish and all these animals for for over two decades there was this note of going underwater and going back to places that we've been studying year after year and just really seeing the the pain and the shift in these ecosystems you know going back to a place that i'd studied a year or two before and coming back and seeing you know 50 60% of the life gone And then you pop her head above the water and try to relay this information to the other humans. You know, it seemed like it was just throwing, you know, a rubber ball against the wall. It would just bounce back and um, trying to get people passionate about corals and saving corals. They would just look at me, you know, and I would just see this kind of almost blank look back of like, you know, why does this guy love corals so much and why are they important? And you know, these animals just look so prehistoric and stone-like, and that's not the case when it comes to whales. I mean, whales really captivate the dream center in the brain, and and now I begin to appreciate that, that they are animals that are as big as a school bus, and they dive to great depths, and they hold their breath for over an hour, and they're... They're mammals just like us, but they're communicating in this dark space using sound. And there's so little that we really know about their world. And I just found them as in almost like a Trojan horse. You know, they're a vehicle that that can create dialogue and discourse with everybody.
2: But what kind of scientific attention do you want to add to the existing attention to whales.
3: Right, what is the next thing to add? I mean, in one sense I just want to step back and say that it always depends on where we put our focus. Like I can easily put my focus in one drop of pond water and study the protozoa for the next 20 years and never fully understand the protozoa. Like the beauty of science is that you can just go layer after layer after layer and continuing to go and and there's a real satisfaction in that of, you know, focusing deeply and, and just continuing to dive deeper and deeper. Whales, there's so many questions. We all know that life came from the ocean and life came out of the ocean, and then we colonized land. But with marine mammals, they went back into the ocean. And that's actually very interesting and very rare, this return back to the ocean. You know, we're, as, as humans, we, we've not returned back but imagine the process that it would take if you were to suddenly to decide that you want to go back into the ocean and live in the ocean and you would kind of first start spending you know all day in the water but then your skin would start you know getting very irritated so you're you would have to build up a different kind of skin and then you would realize well i'm not going to drink fresh water anymore because i'm living in the ocean and you would develop the kidneys that can process, um, you know, not, not having a, a source of fresh water that we're used to. And then you no longer really need hair because that's Im- impeding your, your ability to glide through the water as well. And then your nostril would roll over the side of your head to your back of your head and, and become a blowhole. And you still have your eyes and you can still see. But when you dive down 100 meters, there's almost no light. So now you're using sound to basically feel your way in the dark. And we know they're using sound, but we don't know how they're processing it.
2: In the early 60s, John Lilly made an effort, kind of from his understanding, a really serious effort in communicating with dolphins. He didn't just try to understand them. He wanted to speak with them and actually the other way around wanted them to understand us, what do you think about these efforts of interspecies communication with other mammals?
3: Right, you bring up John Lilly, who is, you know, incredibly loaded uh, name in in the marine mammal research community. But but when you first just step back to think about interspecies communication, like of course we're communicating. You know, everybody has. Pets such as you know dogs and cats, and you could kind of have some level of communication with animals, so that is known you know and and we do also know the power of you know conditioning um, of rewards to get animals to do a certain task um, and training them to do different things and and that's um you know positive reinforcement and 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 that is very well studied. Lilly is an interesting example because he started out as a scientist or a medical doctor. I don't know as much about him as I, I, I've i kind of avoided um, some of his work just because he left such a dark mark on on the field. But as, as he kind of went further and further, he veered away from ethical and scientific boundaries. And um, in one sense, as we do this project that we're doing now on whale communication, I I really learn from one scientist approaching marine mammals unethically can affect several generations of researchers that will follow. So, um, you know, we're now still sort of dealing with with this dark stain um, as we move forward. And part of the approach that we're taking is not having captive animals, although captive marine animals have led to many understandings and findings to them but well one it's just our choice we're choosing to call this more of a listening project where we're trying to be as invisible as possible as we study them by putting microphones and ways of soft robotic uh, fish that uh, hopefully will you know be as discreet as possible and then the other thing is when thinking about interspecies communication, we we're not about having the animals do something human, you know, use an interface that's human, um, play a piano, um, use sign language. This is about observing them on their own terms and seeing if we could understand their communication from their perspective and and that's just our approach. And we do rest on the shoulder of, of many studies that, that did use captive animals in the same way that medical research is, where we, we recognize that we've learned many things from how things have been done in the past. But, but moving forward, the technology has just advanced so rapidly with artificial intelligence and robotics and, and how we sequence. Could you describe like, the main
2: parameters of it? because um you're not getting into these humpback whales uh, that are so famous for their songs but uh, you go into sperm whales right
3: yeah yeah so the goal is is to listen deeply to sperm whales and to translate their language and then attempt to communicate back but not necessarily to talk to them but mainly to validate that we really understand what they're saying. And in order to do such approach, we need marine biologists, um, especially whale biologists. And we have on our team, um, Roger Payne, him and his wife Katie discovered that uh, whales sing. We have Shane Garrow, who has been working with this one population of sperm whales for 16 years and um, has been slowly piecing together how they they use sound to communicate. But it also entails robots. Like, how do we listen to these animals? How does a human even keep up with an animal that on one breath dives down, you know, over a mile deep? But it is possible. You know, we have submarines, we have all this technology in the ocean that can do this thing and all this listening power. So it's about really focusing the lens of these different disciplines and um and then is there a way to come up with a robot that will stick onto a whale just in the way that a remora the fish that kind of um that suction onto the whales and and be almost as invisible or even smaller than a remora so we can get really high resolution sound and maybe even video information about what is happening and then the key part that i i'm really excited about this project is we're working with linguists and how else are we going to understand you know, quote, language if we don't use all this work that we've put into human linguistics um, towards this project. So a lot of my role in this project is really kind of bringing everybody together, bringing everybody to the table. Um, we're focusing on sperm whales for mainly for narrative, the biggest brain, an animal that was vilified in Moby Dick, but is really a gentle, highly sophisticated creature, um, with a very powerful sound apparatus, um, highly encephalized brain, and you know, just not that deep of a human understanding, and they can't be kept in captivity. They actually don't survive um, in captivity, so that's not even a possibility for this animal. And bring these people together and have them all work together with the goal of connecting and understanding. To a whale,
2: why sperm whales and not uh, humpback whales, for instance?
3: When to even go back a little bit further about how this idea came about, I was a 2017-18 Radcliffe fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and it's a, a really beautiful fellowship where 50 academics in all different disciplines um, are in a building together. Our really our only responsibility is attending each other's talks. And um, it allows us to kind of think deeply about different topics and interact with each other. And I had read a book on sperm whales. It was a book where freedivers were trying to make advancements into understanding sperm whales. But I was playing sounds in my office, and I was playing sounds of the sperm whales. And across the hall was a cryptographer, uh, Shafi Goldwasser, And she came in and she sat on my chair and we started talking and and we played the sounds again. And the sperm whales, they use like a click. And these codas are binary, like pluses and zeros. And I think from her perspective as a cryptographer, this was really interesting because it's a little bit like Morse code. You know, rather than it being a song that we have to analyze and, and look for patterns or deep structure within... There's clicks, and um, that was just very amenable to the current machine learning algorithms. And then the other thing is, is that with the humpback whales, it's mostly the males that are doing the singing. In sperm whales, the both the males and the females are using these clicks and codas to communicate. So it um, it just had reasons that drew us closer to it. And as a scientist, you know, we we just have to focus on something small and then start building out. So we will start with sperm whales. We will start with this one area in Dominica where it's very well studied. But as we we get better at our understanding, of course, we'll compare this with other areas.
2: Um, I was asking about the humpback whales, of course, because they were the ones that uh, uh, was so crucial for raising all the whale awareness and thereby also general ocean awareness, um, but yes, what a sperm whale sounds like is is really amazing to me. I must say it, it touches me maybe even more than a humpback whale because we we actually can relate to it via our own machine, so that makes it. <laughs> in a way, even more familiar. It seems so close to something that we created. It's not that we first created machines that could sing. First, we created machines that could make these kind of noises.
3: Yeah, it sounds like a digital, it sounds like a fax machine or something, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting that you find it, you know, more appealing. And and I I wonder, there is something powerful, if you think back to the first time you heard the humpback whale sounds—they're very much like a moan, mm, you know—and think of the way that we use words, mother or madre. Mm, it's got that that vibration, and even going om, oh, mm. you know, it's at a frequency that travels right into the human heart. And sometimes, you know, when I think about the power of that scientific discovery, so simple, whales sing you know and hearing them sing like that just it it stirred a whole generation the sounds were put on the golden record and launched into space as as something we'd want extraterrestrial life to know about earth it was huge you know it was massive and i wonder if we've just become desensitized after the decade you know we've heard them so much but then sometimes with the sperm whale sounds, when I play them to people, they, they found them almost uncomfortable, you know, in, in the way that maybe some people don't like techno music. Just think about that a lot of, how is it that the humpback whale songs went right into the heart of a whole generation and, and led to so much change? It led to the forming of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and it, it literally saved several whale species from extinction.
2: And, and... Yes, I mean, humpback weights, they can go on for 24 hours. Is this correct? Yeah,
3: they you know—they kind of improvise and they, they have a song and they modify it and it's, it's longer and then it repeats um, uh, over and over again.
2: And then you have the sperm weights, they don't go on for 24 hours, but they go for an hour. And I was just thinking, but... What is all the data they are submitting now in this like really efficient way, Um, super loud, making sure that every click will reach the others?
3: Yeah, you're hitting on a point, like I think it was in the 1950s that they just discovered that sperm whales make noise and then discovering that there's two different kinds of noise that they make. They make the click, click, clicks, which are the codas, but then they also use it for echolocation like a submarine um as they're diving and they're they're looking for for food they're navigating with it and and that's a different kind of sound uh much more focused than the clicks so so at least that's what we know at the moment and as we begin looking at the existing data which is only tens of thousands of you know very carefully annotated clicks we are seeing structure and predictability and you know an extra click at a certain point could does signify a certain change of behavior and that's what this project is about is about going from just a few thousand very detailed data sets and bringing that up into the millions and you know maybe even billions and once you get to those larger numbers that's when the power of artificial intelligence and advanced machine learning really, really takes hold. It works much better on, on larger data sets. And yeah, I think you can see that with maybe hospital data or with um, with Google and the algorithms that are slowly learning all your search patterns. So I think that's one of the really exciting things moving forward is that at this moment, there's question marks everywhere. And once we We build this core whale listening station and we really focus over the next five years within this 120 square kilometer area. We hope to start filling in these question marks. And there's so many, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot. There's a hypothesis that the whales can use holographic sound to make images. So imagine if I saw you and I would cover you with sound um, to kind of form an image of you in my head. And then I might be able to play back that hologram of you to another whale to describe what you looked like. You know, that's something that's possible, That um, that's kind of an idea, but how would we test that? How do we scientifically make these points? How do we prove that a whale is talking about something that happened yesterday? And that that alone is a very human thing. Like I, I talk about yesterday, I ate a sandwich and it was a... It was the sandwich was very good, and I'm I'm describing something that that happened 24 hours ago to you. We've we've not proven this in anything but a human that we could we could do something called time displacement. And and um, can you ever show that your dog is barking about to you, and that bark is related to something that happened yesterday?
2: What is the situation regarding? Understanding animals via deep learning on land, are there similar initiatives, like as ambitious?
3: There are some beautiful studies that are using machine learning and bats um, that have been done. There's some really beautiful ones in spiders, um, but they're they're very early. And there's a community of us that are joining together and having conferences and thinking about interspecies communication and thinking about how to apply these new tools, the data has to be very, very high quality and and almost designed for the algorithms. And we're just so fortunate to have the funding for this project now to to build this listening system that's specifically designed for advanced machine learning. Um, so the answer is there are many groups sprouting up and, and you're seeing an exponential rise in machine learning applied to animal behavior. But I I would say that we are the most concerted um, and ambitious initiative.
2: I would think that on land, things are a bit easier, maybe because of the size I think of elephants. There has been already some exploration in what all these like different sounds communicate, different states of Alarm, surprise, annoyance, protest—you can easily observe them as well. Not just when they communicate, but as well, like kind of permanently. And the sperm whales, most of the time, they are hunting like a thousand meters or, or more deep.
3: Yeah, but you would think that elephants, because they live on land, that they're easier. But they come with the other set of challenges of, um, you know, they go under trees and you don't see them anymore. Um, The sound doesn't travel as well on land as it does underwater, where you could hear sounds kilometers away. How about, I mean, at the same time observing them, what
2: they are actually doing right in that moment? As I understood, they are often touching each other when they're communicating. Do they have eye contact or not? I mean... How can you observe this? And the other thing is as well, the context. What have they been doing before? Um, you were talking about, are they referring to something that is not present? For instance, they've been just uh, diving, hunting, and they would talk about their prey.
3: Well, I guess if we can record it, if we can see what they ate, um, and, and we, we know their diet quite well, it's, they, they really love squid what's also something that just to step back a bit about the comparison to elephants is that they're quite long lived and in that time you know there's a lot of opportunity for for experiential learning in terms of navigating and finding ways and these whales live a, a matrilineal groups where their their grandmothers mothers and children and when the, the males get to a certain age, they kind of get kicked out and they go off and they find other males and they s- swim around and they become more of these global travelers. But there's examples of babysitting. So when the the baby sperm whales um, can't dive as deep as the parents or the adults and so they'll just make small dives or they they will leave them at the surface with other family members or associated members of their clan. You know, there's this kind of culture that that has just been discovered, especially by, by Shane and, and his mentor, Hal Whitehead. And I also want to really tip my hat to how hard it is to do this work, to be out on a rocking boat, sprayed with water, having one microphone in your hand, you know, with salt water, just chewing at all your gear, um, being relatively underfunded, and you know the whales, it's so hard to even get your boat close to them without them diving down for over an hour before they pop up again. It just takes such incredible patience and diligence and care and um, nautical abilities for the scientists that have come before us that have worked in the open ocean to give us this bit of narrative that we have.
2: As I know so far, there is no evidence that animals talk about things that are not present, which just means we don't understand their language to that degree. But to find out, I mean, with deep learning, you're really good at recognizing patterns and comparing patterns in one language to another language. But you do this with different human languages and still... They're all humans, so there's certain similarities in their life. Even if they would use kind of a similar grammatical structure as us, uh, the sperm whales, they would still talk about completely different things than us. And how can we find out without observing them meticulously like all the time, and not only in the moment when they speak, but also all the other time, like permanently, because they love squid. But uh, what is it that they ate this time? Did they eat squid? Is there more squid? Are they encouraging the others to also go down f- to get more squid? Are they hiding from them the fact that there's delicious squid down there?
3: Yeah, or are they or using comedy... How can we find out the nice thing about doing a human study is you could sit a human on a chair and say is that red is that blue what are you seeing here how is this making you feel we can we can really probe it in in animal behavior we rely on all these indirect mechanisms so i think it's just a slow process of of peeling the onion back of of one one step at a time but I do think that the current tools that we have definitely allow us to move our understanding forward um, if we focus. Whether we will get to the point that you're suggesting is probably not, but, but maybe, maybe in the future.
2: You also use tags that suck onto the body of the whales. Is there also a camera in those tags?
3: At the moment, they're just recording, but we're we're starting to add cameras. Cameras are complicated because there's no light at depth. So if we do add a camera, then we also add a light. And then will that light modify uh, their behavior or will that, you know, make it more difficult for them to catch squid because now they have a light bulb on them? Um, so at the moment there, we, we have plans to think about using varying low light cameras, but we're we're still um, mainly on sound.
2: You said that uh, you're observing them in a 20 square kilometer area, um, but sperm whales also travel a lot.
3: That's not true with the, with the female communities. They stay, they stay fairly, fairly local. So the, the whales that we're studying in Dominica, um, they're known quite well you know, by, by the little markings on their tails. There's about 200 resident whales that are living and passing through this area. And of those, there's, you know, 25 to 50 of them that are known very well. The water gets very deep off of the coast of Dominica. So it's easy to um, wake up in the morning and get a boat out and be with the whales in short time.
2: The babies, they really need time. To get the language, they do the same as humans. They babble for two years or something. Right. And they also speak in different uh, dialects. Mm-hmm. And is it true that they also have specific codas to refer to different animals?
3: I don't know if that's the case yet, if they're using the codas to refer to different animals. I think that's still an open question. But it's something known from dolphins,
2: that they have certain...
3: The signature whistles? I believe it's more of an identity, you know, of, of you having a certain call that is, that is you know, I'm Ingo. But they have kind of names, no? They have identifications. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, whether it's names or... Even discussing it without anthropomorphizing it is always complicated, right? You know, we're taking our, our reality and we're trying to put it onto these animals because that's the reality that we understand. Um, but maybe they're communicating more in the way that, like, your computer talks to its printer, um, you know, in a, in a different language. Um, I think, um, at least for me myself, I'm going into this... Trying to to leave all my human preconceptions at the door, and that's one of the challenge. Like even the other day, I was I was just trying to be like, okay, what would it be like if I'm a whale? Okay, so I don't have arms, and I'm in the dark a lot, and I'm trying to find food, and um, you know, what would I need to do? What would my needs and wants be? of
2: course anthropomorphism is a big big problem but at the same time sometimes you know as well there's also kind of an opposite problem and that is that animal studies were so driven by the expectations that there's certain things animals cannot do because they're not intelligent enough their um, emotional spectrum is not large enough and So when, let's say, we meet and each of us in the beginning just says, hey, I'm Ingo, but you don't call me Ingo, um, then it's still a name.
3: Yeah. You're reminding me of, um, you know, um, Dominique Knowles, the artist, has a piece where it was a, a whale that carried its dead baby around for a while after the baby died. And I think that image of the mother carrying her dead child you know for several days you know we interpret that as mourning and and i see it as that too anything that a human has evolved to do especially emotions why would we assume that that emotions stop just within us so so yeah i i think that almost anything we find in humans i i wouldn't be that surprised to find it in in other animals.
2: Of course, they're all sleeping. Now you can wonder even if fruit flies dream. And then, you know, I spoke with Alex Jordan about his mirror tests. And for me, the strange thing is to even assume that animals don't have self-recognition. Of course they have self-recognition, but maybe not in a mirror. Then they have it by some other characteristic.
3: Yeah, it's also, you know, I think about how we define intelligence. Um, I know um, you were aware of, uh, you know, Marcus Ryman and I um, finding that um, that first biofluorescent turtle, and that led me down a deep road into thinking about turtles and turtle behavior and turtle biology. And I had never really studied sea turtles before. And now I'm, you know, really focusing my lens on trying to feel what the world is of a sea turtle. And, you know, there was something, the more you spend time with an animal, the more you kind of understand its processes. But sea turtles are interesting. You know, they never seem to really care about you. You know, like a whale or a mammal or a dog, you know, it's curious about you. Um, and it it may be playful, but, um, you know, the turtles were just really could care less if you were there. Um, but then I think about what they do you know just the the sophistication of their lifestyle of the mother finding the way back to this beach and laying these eggs and the baby turtles communicating by sound under the sand so that they can all make a run for the water and then swimming so many kilometers and having this sophisticated navigation that they could find their way back you know years later to the same nesting beach but Yet they don't really want to interact with you. I think about slime molds, you know, the the kind of collective intelligence of fungus. Um, Gosh, there's so many areas in so many different kinds of life that um, we can dive into. It's almost daunting to just think of how much communication is happening on life in the world and how little we really know about it.
2: What I find fascinating about sperm whales is, is that they live in these two completely different spheres of the ocean. That they come completely up and then they go into the very, very deep. Yeah. That they have the eyes to, to see and, and then this completely different sphere where, where, they, where they're completely dependent on sound. This transformation of the body to be able to do this, this is, uh, I think, very strange to us, to be able to bodily transform several times a day to get into a completely different
3: sphere. Just recently when I was spending time with the sperm whales, you know, just seeing exactly what you're saying is, you know, you watch them at the surface for a few minutes breathing and then you see their tails go up and then at that point they're gone for an hour and they're essentially a deep sea animal you know, living in a world that's so foreign to us. You know, even when I go down in a submarine, I have this big clunky submarine full of lights and making engine sounds. And I don't see that many things, you know, except the things that can't get away at the bottom. But, you know, we don't see all these squid and things that probably the whale is seeing. And I was thinking all the time, like, they probably have such a deep knowledge of the deep sea that's so far beyond our human knowledge because they're there all the time.
2: Uh you said that this project for now has 5 years.
3: Yeah, this project is funded by TED Audacious and it's a really uh, a wonderful kind of crowd-funded situation where they choose really really bold and potentially transformative ideas. And well actually I I I wanted the project to be 10 years, but I think Ten years is too long from a donor perspective, Um, but we do have funding for five years. Right now, it's taking us a year and a half just to build the core whale listening station and just to kind of get the gears cranking, um, build all the infrastructure, think of how we're storing the data, think of the pipelines for the machine learning, you know, really getting the, the dialogue among all the scientists in line, um, most of my team have never seen a whale before. They're, they're really excellent at machine learning or cryptography or linguistics. And next summer, we'll turn on this, the pipe. And then we'll have three years with our initial round of funding to, to begin to make discoveries. What would be
2: the greatest possible outcome of this project? You gave it a very, very ambitious name, City, which in your case means citation Translation Initiative, but the initials are the same as for communication with extraterrestrial intelligence.
3: Yeah, the ambitions. I mean, the beautiful thing about humans is that we're kind of understanding our our place in the galaxy. We're understanding that there's things like black holes that exist there's possibilities for extraterrestrial life like i think just the human inquisitiveness and expansiveness is to me one of the things that gives me the most hope about about us but my hope in in kind of using this name is to 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 channel this energy and curiosity and this beauty of human ingenuity inside the ocean to connect to the whales in a way that it would give us our training wheels before we go outward. And, and I think of how we treat each other here on Earth, how we see the other when we encounter a culture that's different. Um, we don't have a great track record as humans. So why do we think we're ready to go to outer space yet? And um, my my kind of real dream here is with this inward look of understanding that we recognize how precious, how delicate, how fragile everything is here. And um, my hope is really that this just reaches people's hearts and allows them to create their own narrative of what we're doing, um, and that, in essence, we're just listening.
2: Do you imagine that if you would manage to kind of crack the interspecies communication code, this would lead to kind of the same cultural shock, like if we would have definite proof of uh, extraterrestrial intelligence?
3: I would hope so. But it's so hard to predict human behavior, you know, would it have an impact? It might have an impact on on us individually, but would it have an impact collectively?
2: I think what would create this cultural shock is that they would talk about us. We wouldn't be surprised so much of them talking about each other. Yeah, maybe even having names and talking about um yesterday but talking about us about our noise our pollution our boats about our
3: faces yeah i when people always say well what would what are you going to say to the whales first and i usually kind of turn that question back at them and say well what would you say to the whales resoundingly there's one response that's kind of coming up which is i'm sorry um you know, I'm sorry for making so much noise. I also have another, you know, bad nightmare that they just swear all the time. You know, they have very foul mouths. And um, as soon as we understand what they're saying, you know, we we quickly don't want to hear what they have to say anymore. I, I also don't want to be so idealistic, you know, that it's going to be um, so beautiful and that they're going to have all this wisdom to share with us. I've been reading about, you know, the idea of it's called a super whale, where we you know, certain animals like crows or we instill all these kind of traits onto them that we kind of want them to have, you know, and we kind of want this whale to be something that will save us and will have something, you know, very meaningful to tell us that'll get us back on track. I I think this question, what
2: would I say to the whale, is even more daring because... um of course, we would end up talking to them, but
3: uh, should we
2: really do that?
3: Should we just leave them alone? But we're not leaving them alone, though. Look, the, the noise that we're creating, the the amount of underwater sound now is, you know, essentially at your dinner table having a jackhammer all the time. We're filling their water with plastic. We have fishing nets all over that they're getting stuck in. And we're making their world very noisy. And um, yeah, I, I think you're getting at the real point, though. It's it's not about what we would say to them, and that we we want to have a dialogue on a human level. It's it's I, for me, it's more about wanting to know what they're saying. Just the desire that we we care enough to want to know their world.
2: What if we find out about? Needs, desperations that we didn't thought of before and that are m- might not even be related to us, to us disturbing them. Maybe they're just desperate for more squid. Maybe some are really scared of going down into the deep and they don't like it. How would this affect us? Would we... Com- completely overcome our ideas of conservation and switch to help those we understand and like.
3: I would hope so. We don't intentionally want to hurt these whales. You know, much of what the harm that we're doing is unintentional. So it could help us do less unintentional harm. But it could go further,
2: not just doing less harm, but as well, you know, be more proactive in kind of changing their environment to to make it even better than it would be with zero human intervention. And could this as well be problematic? Because then we care so much about the whales, of course, with their huge brains and our understanding of them, that we neglect the interests of other creatures in the sea.
3: Yeah, I see the whales as just, you know, as another piece of this holistic system. And I think even like an education about the ocean should involve all these intricacies of the food web and not focus solely on on the whales because they're charismatic. We spoke about John Lilly as being such a dark figure. But the first
2: time we met was in 2018, so three years ago, and you were at the very beginning of this project. And um, you were reading a book of John Lilly.
3: Oh, that's right. Yes, I remember that. I do. I had it with me on the trip.
2: I knew all this stuff and that he worked with uh, Margaret Lovett who actually did a hand job to Dolphin to make him more keen on learning English. But then actually you made me look into his writing and yeah, there is this scenario that they would gain not just like rights of nature, conservational rights of nature, but that they would get participatory rights. They would sit in the UN. They would have their chair and then he imagined the entertainment industry, how it would profit from underwater bellies and dramas, and (laughs) he thought of them scoring music together with us.
3: Well, thanks for reminding me of that. And, you know, I always think it's important to look back into the past. As a scientific community, we we love to attack each other. Um, We're really, really good at sharpening our knives and digging them into each other. And I think on one side, when I see another scientist who was daring and bold and came up with an idea, I I, I respect it, and and I was interested in his trajectory because he started out, you know, do, approaching it and with more of a scientific method, and and then as you you said, he turned. You know, also you have to consider at that time, like Timothy Leary was a professor at Harvard and giving LSD to his students. So, you know, just to be putting things into perspective of the time. But in 1961, they had the first meeting for SETI, the SETI with the S, and um, John Lilly was among them, among Carl Sagan and um, Frank Drake. And uh, Lilly got everybody so excited with dolphins that they, they formed this group called the Order of the Dolphins. And they even had a little pin that they wore. And um, as his career progressed, he kind of became less scientific. And maybe that's one of the the dangers of I don't I don't I don't know what I'm saying. But I did appreciate the kind of vastness of his early thinking. But what you mentioned with what happened with with the work towards the end was the equivalent to an atomic bomb being dropped in an academic field.
2: I'm a writer of, of fiction, speculative non-fiction, and of course this allows me to come up with all kinds of scenarios. And it's one thing to come up with scenarios and the other is to try to get there like with a shortcut and destroy. Which brings me to yeah, my last question. I think several times you have been collaborating with artists and in particular in the context of TBA21 Academy, Why do you do that? I mean, for me, it's obvious that it's great for artists to gain your perspective, your knowledge. What does it give you back?
3: It's been over 10 years that I've been working with different artists. and In one sense, it's it's very similar to trying to understand whale culture. I'm fascinated by the discourse and the dialogue at how art artist' work, and I've been deeply influenced by how artists approach their craft, how they form discourse and then create either objects or films or you know exhibits around the discourse. I wonder if I would have you know taken on such an ambitious project as as this project SETI if it wasn't for for those interactions. And, um, you know, when I see the power of art, I I was thinking in about the pandemic, you know, how many scientists that worked on the vaccine can you name by name, you know, we're only communicating on one channel, but artists have, a uh, you know, they have access to other channels of communication. And I was a, a fly on the wall. I think one of my most satisfying parts of working with John Jonas was watching her performance and I was just watching from the back of the room and then afterwards I was hearing the responses and I I just heard people saying, like, I don't know how I can ever eat a fish again. I just felt it reached people in a way that I could have never reached them and, um, and I really respect that.
2: Um, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, they're often called disruptive creators um, and you know in this way that they shape the world in a way you could say as well was like the intellectual freedom of an artist mm-hmm. and when I heard of you really putting like all the strings together in this project in, in city I thought this is so amazing that you can do it also for science and that this is possible Oh, thank you. I watched videos that I found from your conferences. And uh, for me, it's amazing to have like a a tech person suddenly speaking at length about whale communication.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know, it makes me so happy. I love hearing the word whale come out of people's mouths. Like it's especially people who I wouldn't expect say the word whale you know, like these absolute titans in the machine learning world. The word almost has a childish sound to it, you know,
0: whale. This was the fifth episode of Ocean Wants featuring David Gruber. Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero-Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org, dirtank.ch, or subscribe with your podcast provider.